All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 18. We'll also be reading from the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 18 and Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I just finished reading a uh, book that was loaned to me by William Cochran. It's called Roger Maris. America's Reluctant Hero. I love baseball. It's my favorite sport. And I also love baseball history. One of my favorite documentaries is Ken Burns' Baseball that lasts for at first nine innings, now ten innings. One of the great documentaries. And he talks about Roger Maris, 1961, playing for the New York Yankees. And he was, uh, he ended up breaking Babe Ruth's season record for home runs in a single season. Uh, And he was hated all the way through that uh, season. The New York press hounded him. The New York fans hounded him. They did not want him breaking Babe Ruth's record. And if anybody broke it, they wanted his teammate Mickey Mantle to break it, not Roger Maris. And so uh, people were, for the most part, very unkind to Roger Maris during that time. In uh, the book, Roger Maris, Reluctant Hero, uh, the book talks about a fellow by the name of Frank Lane. Frank Lane uh, was a, uh, an executive in Major League Baseball. He was a general manager for several Major League Baseball teams, including uh, the Cleveland Indians, the Milwaukee Brewers, um, the Chicago White Sox, and the St. Louis Cardinals. He was known for uh, his constant trading of players. Now, all general managers spend time, especially during the offseason, trading players, but uh, if you follow the Braves pretty closely, you know that, for example, in, in this offseason, we've traded, uh, we have traded nobody. We've let some folks go, but we haven't really traded for anybody, no major trades. And so uh, on an average year, you might have somewhere around five or six, maybe five or six major trades that are conducted by a general manager. But Frank Lane conducted over 400 trades during his general manager career. Over 240 of those trades he made while he was with the Chicago White Sox. He uh, was known for trading away good players in just a nonsensical way. Uh, He made a lot of people mad when he would trade players away. He traded Roger Maris away to the Yankees. He traded uh, some players like Norm Cash, Rocky Calavito. Uh, he tried to trade, when he was at the Cardinals, trade Stan Musial away, and the owner of the Cardinals blocked the trade. But he was so trade happy that on one season, in the middle of the season, he traded managers with his opposing team. I've never heard of a general manager doing that. Trading, uh, you know, you can trade players in the middle of the year, but trading managers. He earned nicknames. Trader Frank, Frantic Frank, Trader Lane, the Wheeler Dealer Lane, for all of his over 400 trades that he made during his career. Made a lot of people angry. Bobby Bragan wrote a book entitled, You Can't Hit the Ball with a Bat on Your Shoulder. And Bobby Bragan worked for Commissioner Bowie Kuhn with Major League Baseball. And when Frank Lane died in 1981 at the age of 84, Bowie Kuhn sent Bobby Bragan to Frank Lane's funeral as a representative from the baseball commissioner's office. There were actually four people from the baseball commissioner's office who went. Bobby Bragan was the only official with the commissioner's office. 
But four people, including Bobby Bragan, went to Frank Lane's funeral. They were four of eight people who showed up for his funeral. And those four had to go. Bobby Bragan in his book said this about Frank Lane. He says, evidently, he must have traded his friends away too. The title of this message this morning is The Power of Friendship. Uh, perhaps of the subjects that I've preached about since I've been at Palmetto, I've preached about friends and friendships more than any other subject. I'd have to go back and tally it up, but I know that just a year and a half ago I preached a series called Friends, and every single sermon was on friends. Uh, I walked in this morning, and Miss Sarah Cochran was seated about three-fourths of the way back. She was reading through the book, and she said, You know, you preached from this same passage of Scripture back on March the 6th of last year. I didn't realize that. I said, well, what was the title of the sermon? She said, something to do with friends. I said, we're going to hear something like that again, not the same sermon. But being friends, having friends, the importance of friends, the power of friendship is something that I believe is uh, of super importance, especially if we want to be uh, effective in our Christian life. The life of faith is impossible to live effectively without friends. 1 Samuel chapter 18 is one of the key passages of Scripture that tell us about friendships. It's, uh, it concerns King David before he becomes a king. He becomes really good friends with a fellow named Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of the first king, Saul. And David and Jonathan become best friends. Look with me, 1 Samuel chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing. Now keep in mind, this is not a bathrobe. This is, a, this is a, the robe that's worn by the heir to the throne. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Talking about giving a shirt off your back to a friend. Now also turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter number 4. Ecclesiastes is a journal written by a man looking for happiness. And in his pursuit of happiness, in his journey to find happiness, he, he journals what he finds. Most of what he finds does not bring him happiness. Most of the things that he, that he tries, pleasure, education, wisdom, uh, money, all these kind of things which may be good to some extent were not enough to bring him happiness. Even all of them together were not enough to bring him happiness. One of the things that he analyzes is friends and he does come to the conclusion that friends are necessary even though even then you need more but they are necessary he says this in ecclesiastes 4 beginning with verse 7 again i saw something meaningless under the sun there was a man all alone he had neither son nor brother there was no end to his toil yet his eyes were not content with his wealth for whom am i toiling he asked and why am i depriving myself of enjoyment This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. 
If either, either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. We're in a series entitled Starting from Scratch. The whole point of this series is to give us some biblical insights that will help us to make this year a better year than any previous year that we've had or most previous years that we have had. That this year will be a better year in terms of our spiritual walk, our our relationship with God and our relationship with other people of faith and our outreach to those who are lost without faith, without Christ. So far, we've talked about the importance of transitions, that a time of transition is a great opportunity to stop and evaluate where you are, where you've been, where you're going. We've also looked at the fact that God blesses us with certain things, gifts, abilities, friends, access to himself, and he wants us to harness what we have, not what we don't have, but what we have to, uh, to, and, and put it in his hands, let him have access to it so he can, through us, empower us to live more effective lives. We've talked about the importance of vision, the idea of looking down the road a piece and seeing, uh, painting a picture of what you want to be, what you want your life to look at on December 31st, 2012, or five years down the road, or 10 years down the road, or, or when you die and someone writes your obituary in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution or the New England Times-Herald or the South Fulton Citizen, what would you like for that obituary to truthfully be able to say about you? Setting a vision. And then once you have that vision set in your mind and in your heart, you, you devise a plan where little by little, here a little, there a little, you move toward the accomplishment of that plan as God gives you the grace to move forward toward that goal. And we talked about zeroing in last Sunday night. We talked about the high return of zeroing in. Most of us are trying to do too many things in our 21st century American world. We have too much on our plate. And the fact of the matter is we need to cut out a lot of things that we might like to do and focus on the few things that we do really, really well and and, uh, move toward, strive toward excellence in those things. And I believe that we will find much more satisfaction in our lives. But there's one further thing here this morning I want us to realize about starting from scratch, having a more impactful year, and that is that we can't do it alone. We cannot do it as Lone Ranger Christians. Nothing about the Bible tells us that we can live this life of faith alone. The journey of faith is meant to be lived in a Christian, truly Christian community. Lee Strobel It's one of my favorite authors, and he tells a story in one of his books about a newspaper columnist whose name was Marla Paul. Marla Paul published a newspaper column in which she just uh, really poured out her heart and just let let her readers feel, hear what she was really feeling. She, She poured out her frustration over her lack of friendships. She said this, she says, the loneliness saddens me. How did it happen that I could be 42 years old and not have enough friends? I think there are women out there who don't know how lonely they are, she says. It's easy enough to fill up the day with work and family, but no matter how much I enjoy my job and love my husband and child, they're not enough. When the column appeared in the newspaper, letters started pouring in. 
At first, they came in from housewives. That would be expected. But not only from housewives, but there were, there were corporate executives who wrote in. There were university professors who wrote in saying, quote, I've had the exact same experience, one quote. One person said, I've often felt that I'm standing outside looking through the window of a party to which I was not invited. Marla Paul was, was really shocked by the response she got from her article. She said this. She said, all these people who wrote to me wanted to share their frustration and their feeling of estrangement. All of them were tremendously relieved to discover that they weren't the only ones experiencing this loneliness. It's an article that points up to the need and the value, the power of friendships. It's, uh, I've made it no secret to you all that I'm a fan of 70s classic music. I like it. It's where I lost most of my hearing from, I, I, I'm sad to tell you. But there were many, many songs that I, I loved from the 70s. One of them was a song uh, that I just like to uh, sing just part of the words to it. Now, it's a difficult song to sing, so I'm going to probably be flat or either sharp, wrong one way or the other on some of the notes. See if you recognize it. I built walls, a fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. Who sang that? Simon and Garfunkel, two of my favorites. It was a song written by Paul Simon in which, in the song, he tries to convince the the hearers, the listeners of that song, that he is okay with no friendships. In fact, that he prefers not having anybody around him. And that he's a rock that feels no pain and he's an island that never cries. It's true that a rock feels no pain. It's true that an island never cries. But they also never feel rejoicing. They never experience happiness. They never experience joy. They never enjoy the wonderful conversation between two people who care a lot about each other. Charles Swindoll, in a book he wrote a couple of decades ago, was one of the first ones who made the observation that the neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit that there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. The neighborhood bar. This is Charles Swindoll, again, one of my favorite authors. He said it's an imitation, the bar is. They dispense liquor instead of grace. They dispense escape rather than reality. But it is a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable, he says. It is democratic. You can tell People secrets and they usually don't tell others or even want to. I wish more churches were that way. He says the bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved, and so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers, he says. Reminds me of Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, in which he said that the four basic 
foundational needs of every human being are to live, to learn, to leave a legacy, and to love. Except love was number two in his. To live, to love, to learn, to leave a legacy. The whole idea, the whole need to love is uh, evidence that we need relationships in life in order to make it through this life. We could go through this entire congregation and we could spend this entire day right on through the evening worship with one after another after another talking about experiences you've had where you would not have made it through you don't believe had it not been for the relationships in your life. Swindoll's quote about the neighborhood bar offering that kind of counterfeit relationship. When God really intends for it to come through a church family and friends, Christian friends, reminded me, and I'm sure it did some of you, of, of the old sitcom Cheers. In particular, I love the theme song. You remember the theme song? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. For the would-be king, David, there was no closer friendship in his life than the friendship he had with Jonathan, the son of 1 King Saul. That friendship was even uh, brought to the surface when Saul sought to kill David, but Jonathan still took up for him and protected him. It was a friendship like no other. The Bible says that they were knit as if they were one spirit. The Bible says that Jonathan loved David as if he was himself. He loved him as his own self. They were the closest of friends. Chapter 18, verses 1 and 3 tell us, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. He loved him as himself. He made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Took off his robe, gave it to David, his tunic, his sword, his bow, his belt. That's 1 Samuel chapter 18. Sometime later in 2 Samuel chapter 1, Saul, who tries to kill David, is at war with David's forces. And Jonathan is caught between his love for his father and his close friendship with David. He's really in a pickle of a, of a position. But in battle, by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 1, we find out that Saul and Jonathan have been killed in battle. And in 2 Samuel 1, the news reaches David that they both have died. You'd think that insofar as Saul is concerned, he would celebrate. But he doesn't. And he certainly doesn't celebrate the death of his best friend, closest friend, Jonathan. In fact, he starts grieving and he grieves for days. And he finally gets up and he writes a sad song. A sad song he writes. I don't know what the tune of it was, but uh, I, I can only imagine that uh, the tune involves some whiny fiddle or maybe a slow-moving harmonica accenting back and forth. I know you think that uh, the Old Testament didn't include bluegrass and that kind of sad country, but it was a sad song. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 1 and you read the, the lyrics of the song, you can pretty well tell that the title of it was this, How the Mighty Have Fallen. Not only did David write the song, but he insisted. He, he put it into law that every family in Israel should teach the song to the, their children and to their cousins and to their, their uh, aunts and uncles so that nobody would forget Saul and Jonathan. 
You see, David recognized something that's so important for us, and that is you can go through life and you can try to accomplish certain things, but there will always be these big gaps that hinder us from accomplishing what we could, and those gaps can only be filled by friendships. And friendships, good friends, fill those gaps in a number of ways. For example, first of all, friends enable you and me to accomplish more than we could alone. Friends enable us to accomplish more than we could alone. I'll tell you this, if you read the story of Jonathan and David, there were times when Saul wanted to kill David, but Jonathan went to David, protected him, and so by virtue of what Jonathan did for David to protect him from his own father, Saul, we can say this, that without Jonathan, David could not have accomplished what he did. He'd have never been king. He'd have been killed long before he ever approached the throne. The writer of Ecclesiastes says this, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Second, friends pick you up when you're down. I love to go into the book of Genesis and read the story of Abraham and Lot. Abraham and his nephew Lot. You know, when God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, Abraham left At first with his father, his wife, and his nephew Lot. Before they got very far, his father Terah died in the city of Haran. And so they proceeded forward on their journey with just Abraham, Sarah, and his nephew Lot. Who would have been a whole lot, he'd have been a whole lot better off had he just left him back in Ur. There are two different times. One in Genesis 14 and the other one in Genesis 18 where where. Abraham goes out of his way to rescue Lot. In chapter 14, Lot is captured by some raiding, uh, uh, conquering forces. Abraham hears about it and he, and he gets up a few hundred fighting men and he goes after them. Outnumbered heavily, he still goes and he captures the invaders and he frees Lot. In chapter 18, God reveals to Abraham that he's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah where Lot lives. And Abraham remembers My nephew is there. Lord, if there are 50 people, will you save the city? Yes, I will. God starts to turn. Whoa, 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 whoa. How about 40? Yeah, I'll save it if there's 40. He turns. Whoa, 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 whoa. How about 30? How about 20? Finally, he says, let me just ask you one more time. If there are 10 people who are are righteous there, will you save the city? And God says, yes, I will. Only problem is he didn't find 10 people there righteous. But in spite of the fact that he didn't find 10 people righteous, God spared Lot. And he did it in response to Abraham's prayer. Two different occasions, Abraham picked Lot up when Lot was down. Again, the, reader of, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he says, he says, Two are better than one, for if either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity the one who falls and has no one to help him up. Third, friends, spur you on to greater things. In the book of Acts, you find Saul of Tarsus, the terrorist of the church, had letters, official letters of permission to destroy churches and kill certain Christian leaders. On the way to Damascus, you remember how he was confronted with the Lord in a vision and he received Christ in a miraculous way. From there, he he went from the worst terrorist to the greatest missionary of the Christian church and he goes to Jerusalem to try to be accepted by the apostles. And they're quite skeptical about this newfound conversion. And they don't accept him. It must have left him dejected. 
They're not going to believe him. He's trying to be honest. I wouldn't have believed him either, to be honest with you. I wouldn't have. And so the Bible says he leaves Jerusalem, and he goes down and spends three years all by himself in the desert trying to find himself. And then when he gets through there, he just goes back home to Tarsus. And that's where he is when Barnabas, whose name is Joseph, his nickname is Barnabas. It means the encourager, the encourager went to Tarsus and said, Saul, I know you're here. Paul, I, his name's changed to Paul. He said, Paul, I know you're here. I want you to come with me. And Barnabas takes him from Tarsus to Jerusalem, not a small journey, takes him into Jerusalem, meets with Peter and John and all the apostles, and he says, look, guys, I know you, you're a little skeptical about uh, Paul here, but I'm here to tell you his conversion is real. This man is the real item. Had it not been for Barnabas, we would not have even known of the Apostle Paul. Friends, spur us on to greater things. And finally, friends are honest when you need the truth. David had a commander named Joab. The Bible said that David went to war against his own son Absalom. Actually, Absalom went to war against David. But David didn't want Absalom killed. He wanted to win the battle, but he didn't want his son killed. Well, the end result was his son was killed. And David grieved over it when he heard about it. The soldiers came back thinking there'd be a victory parade, but they come back and they tell David, Absalom is, is, is dead, we've won the battle, and instead of celebrating, David goes into weeks of mourning over his son. Joab's the military commander. He's also David's nephew. And Joab has had a belly full of what David's doing. The Bible says, 2 Samuel 18, Joab goes into David and he, re- he rebukes him for not praising the people, for bringing him back to his throne. He reminds David there are larger issues at stake. You're still king, David, and as king, you have a responsibility to the people. You have a job to do. You need to get up and do it. Now, let me tell you, you don't just do that to a king in Old Testament times. There, there were nations where if you walked into the king's presence with a, with a frown on your face, you could be under penalty of death. You had to smile whether you felt like it or not. So for somebody to go in and confront a king was a major issue. But Joab was that kind of a friend to David because that's what real friends really do. Friends are honest when you need the truth. Sadie Wallace was the daughter of Ben Wallace, who was a star basketball player. And when Sadie was in her older years, Ben and his wife Chanda offered to build her a new house in a new area of town and try to get her to move closer to them in a new area of town. And over and over and over again, Miss Sadie refused to do it. Wouldn't do it. Absolutely, foot down, not going to do it. Finally, two days before she died, she gave in to it. Two days. They didn't know she was about to die, but two days before she died, she gave in to it. And she said, Ben, I'll agree to let you build me a new house under one condition. He said, what is that, Mama? She said, you have to tear down the house I'm living in right now, and you build a new house right where the old house is standing. That wasn't what Ben had in mind. He said, Mama, why? 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 I'm wanting to move you to a new house somewhere else, a better place. Why do you want me to tear down this house and build a house right back where it is? She said, because if my friends come looking for me, I want them to be able to find me. Ringo Starr used to sing a song. 
said, what would you do if I sang out a tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song and I'll try not to sing out a key. I get by with a little help from my friends. I get high with a little help from my friends. I'm going to try with a little help from my friends. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for your friendship, for you have always, will always be the best friend we've ever had, bar none. You also give us great friends who pick us up when we're down, who tell us the truth when we need it and they know just how to do it. They spur us on to be greater, to do greater things than we ever could alone. They encourage us, motivate us to accomplish more than we ever could by ourselves. We're stronger with the friends that you have given us. Lord, I thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen.